Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. fan recently tweeted ended 2021 with Janine Tesori Carolina change and starting 2022 with Janine Tesori Kimberly Akimbo as it should be Tony award-winning composer Janine Tesori has two excellent shows running right now in New York City and was a musical supervisor on the film revival of West Side Story those are three very different projects with three very distinct sounds Carolina change co-written with Tony Kushner is almost like an operetta about a southern black maid in the 1960s and the Jewish family that employs her but doesn't always see her. We spoke earlier in the show with the lead actor and director of Kimberly Akimbo, a coming-of-age story with a twist that has sort of an up-tempo pop-rock sensibility. Both have earned rave reviews. Time Out named Kimberly Akimbo the best new musical of 2021, and Vulture's Helen Shaw has called Caroline or Change, quote, a candidate for the century's greatest piece of musical theater. But that kind of praise is nothing new for a work by Tesori, who has twice been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, for the musical's Fun Home, and Soft Power. The New York Times says of Tesori, quote, has helped to expand the boundaries of the American musical in a way that recalls such forebearers as Stephen Sondheim and Elizabeth Swatos. Her body of work also spans Thoroughly Modern Millie, Shrek the Musical, and Violet. We are so happy to have Janine Tesori with us now. Hi, Janine. Hi. Well, after we after listening to that, I now know why I feel so tired. <laughs> <laughs> the good tired, though. The good tired. <laughs> the good tired. Yes. So the story grows. You know, you grew up in this area. Grandchild of a composer started playing the piano at three. What do you remember about those early days, or what have adults told you about those early days, and when they knew you had a specific talent? Um, you know, I always think it's really important to have a keyboard or a guitar or something because I, th- I think that young people, they know what they want. They ha- you have to, they, you know, they reveal what they want to. So I would wander over to the to the piano. My, my sister has played. My father really loved um, all of the arts, even though he really didn't know anything about them. And I just played Edelweiss endlessly until my mother said, either someone medicates me or gets that child lessons. So um, I, I really started after that. I played by ear from, for a long time before I really started with my teacher at five or six. And you studied pretty seriously for a while. I studied very seriously in a way that um, I've always loved the Lincoln Center Serious Fun because I, I the, the title of that festival, I think that my first teacher was a really, he was a portal into the way to mm-hmm. think about music that I still use to this day about thinking about music in colors and not judging music, but really listening to it, letting it occur for you. I'm wondering about the people and the cultures that made that music, not thinking about keys in a way that's anything but exploratory. He was really everything. Then when I got into a, quote, gifted program, I really bristled and then I 
I quit because mm. it was the classical canon that was not really in the cards for me. Oh, what was it? It felt too confining? I had a wonderful teacher with a, I, I still remember the smell of her, um, I think it was final net, you know, she had one of those huge hairdos. So to this day, <laughs> the smell of hairspray brings me back to a PTSD situation, but it was, she wanted something for me as opposed to wanting to ask me what I wanted from music. And what I didn't know at the time was that the piano was a means to an end. It wasn't the end for me. I wasn't a good enough pianist. I was going to end up using that as to stand in for an orchestra or to be my accomplice in a, in a way for composing. But I, how were we to know back then? It wasn't really, I didn't know that women could, I didn't even know that you could compose music. Mm -hmm. I only knew about my grandfather who had, was long dead by that time. So you have this moment, you're, you turn your back on it, you fall out of love, you go to Barnard, you think, I'm, you're possibly on the road to be a doctor. What stopped you? What shifted? How did you make your U-turn back to music? You know, I had a wonderful time at Columbia. Um, I had some friends who were incredibly musical. My roommate, um, Debbie, was an incredible singer. Uh, I had a boyfriend at the time named Chris Wood, who was just so expansive about music and that the Columbia and the folk scene, and we used to go downtown to clubs and listen to music. And so all of a sudden, and I took a musician, musicianship class with a woman who is now teaching, I think she's still teaching at University of Chicago. And she absolutely turned my life around by reminding me what was already there that was dormant in a way that I had put away. And suddenly it began to dawn on me that it was time for me to think about this and I didn't even know I wasn't aware of Broadway I didn't really know about shows I didn't grow up going to see shows I didn't know anything I was in bands and I had studied you know with a teacher so uh, it was really um, a, it opened up a map the city in 1979 was a map for me at that point musically my guest is Janine Tesori the composer so at what point did you think, okay, I'm going to do this for a career. It's not just that I love this or that I have a talent for it. I'm going to focus on this as my life's work. Uh, I'm still making that decision. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that the, the truth about um, writing musicals and this why uh, when people ask me about students and I have many students and I mentor a lot of um, young, young people um, is, is that, you know, often you don't get paid to write you get paid to have written. And that is very difficult because you have to be a freelance artist and an entrepreneur, a sense of business in that you understand the way that work can make money, but that you don't want to be beholden to it, that you really want to see the world as a voyager, as, as something that is going to make your ear dance and in the theater, your eye dance as well. So the business part of it is very, very tricky. And when I think about the body of work, I think, well, I've had to write all of those things. Um, even if I had not wanted to, I've, mm -hmm. I've had to write in order to uh, make a living. When you think about a decision you made early on in your career that's made a huge difference in your life, what was it? When I was 24, I was mentored by a man named Burl Red, who is uh, was an extraordinary, mm -hmm. extraordinary musician. And the way that he guided me, we started a company together after we figured out, even though he was twice my age, 
he treated me so seriously as I'd never thought about myself. And uh, I did a lot of work in the studio with him in Nashville and all over the world. He taught me how to record and be behind the board. He taught me about orchestration and the business of being in business as a musician and not to lose your soul, but to really be smart about using both parts of your brain. And I brought him a mix. And once and I said, well, tell me what you think. And he said, tell me what you think. And it was the first time that I thought, oh, that's the way it works. You can't wait for the grade. You have to know something about it and get information from other people, but not always wait for the pat on the head as the grade. And that was a turning point for me. You are also, I thought this was so interesting, you were a conductor for a while. Yeah, I was not very good, but I, <laughs> I was a conductor. I was a conductor in a pit. I played in many pits. I, I love I love musicians. I learned so much. There was a wonderful percussionist um, who took me aside and said, you know, I think you should think about getting out of the pit. He's like, I, I, I don't foresee this for you. And... Um, he did me such a favor because, again, it was that way of seeing me as a fellow musician that I had was not thinking about myself. I was so happy. I was in, in pits from the time I was 19. And I, I just was I could not believe my luck. I still feel that way when I get a job before I have to do it. I think I cannot believe I do this. I, I, I have to I have to get better. You know, there's always that sense for me. My guest is composer Janine Tesori. So let's talk about the couple of shows that you have up now. We talked to Vic, Vicki Clark and to Jessica Stone earlier about Kimberly Akimbo. Now, the music in that show does not sound like Caroline or Change, which within itself goes from gospel to rock to klezmer. And then if you think, oh, wow, Shrek, 30 Mile and Millie, Fun Home as well, this woman has, has made. Everything's so different. What is the common thread in, in the way you work, even if the genres are so different? Uh, for me, it's character forward. It's mm. um, audio, it's uh, soundscape forward. It's household forward. When we did Fun Home, uh, the, the reason I love working with playwrights is they're, they're much smarter than me in the dramatic sense. I learn from them and they learn, I hope, from me as well. We talk about characters endlessly. Michael Ockrent used to ask his actors, and he was a beautiful director, what's in your pockets? And I loved that. Um, and I think, you know, what's in your musical pockets for these mm -hmm. characters? What do you listen to? What is the a favorite composer of mine is Janacek because of the way his, he followed speech patterns. What is the way that the lilt in your voice, what do you sound like when you get mad, when you have joy? What is it staccato? Is it legato? Uh, you know, what, what, where did your ancestors come from? The investigation that I think a lot of actors do, I do. And I, I, I wonder about them. And so in a way, I shapeshift my sound. The, it's, yes, it's through the filter of how I hear the world, but I shapeshift it so that it's their archeological dig. So when my hope is that audiences are, I illuminate what the playwright has done in text so that the musically that you what you hear yes is the tip of the iceberg but underneath is everything i have been thinking about what that character's history is 
Well, let's listen to a section of Caroline or Change that shows off how much is going on in the score. This is Cigarette into Laundry Finish, and it begins with the characters Caroline and Noah, the young son of the family Caroline works for. Um, and by the way, in the section, we hear the singers who are also a washing machine and a, and a radio, and we'll, we'll talk about this on the other side. Light me up. Don't suck in. Shouldn't let you do that, boy. When you grow up, don't smoke these things. So this musical features a singing dryer, a singing bus, as we said, the washing machine. How, what is it like to come up with a soundscape, a song for an inanimate object? Well, the, you know, when Tony Kushner, who was like a brother to me now, when he brought this to me, it was, um, it felt very complete. It, it all came out of his lived experience and his imagination. You know, as Sondheim said, it's, observation, experience, and imagination. And so that was his experience and how he observed the world through the lens of this nine-year-old and his imagination would run, ran wild. And so this was the template. And I, I you know, it's funny when I, when I first read this, I thought, of course they sing. Like that, <laughs> that doesn't, I had no issue with that. Um, there was a reviewer who was quite cruel about it in the and made fun of it and um, that it's like Beauty and the Beast. And I thought someday this piece is gonna meet its time. Maybe not today, but someday if like I get to live long enough and Tony gets to see, which I'm really grateful for this year. But uh, when I was at Barnard and we used to do the our laundry in those rows and rows of those ancient machines, there was one that was clearly going to kill us all. It would shake and move. And I, a dryer that just felt like it was going to just get sucked through the earth. And I remember that and thinking, that thing has a personality. That thing is satanic. And so there, there was the sound and the rhythm, the quotidian rhythm of all of these things, the machines that help us. And in this country that used to be on by the sweat and the, the labor of, of unpaid uh, um, and not freed enslaved people. So we really, when, when George C. Wolf, when we worked with him, that is how we discussed the machinery. It was not magic realism. It was machinery that had replaced electricity that had been done by many, many people before that. 
Let's play the clip of Lot's wife from Carolina Change. People have listened to the show regularly. We played it when we had the show's lead, who is wonderful. Um, it's a showstopper. It literally, it just stops the show. You can't believe what you're hearing. You feel it in every cell in your body. Tell us a little bit about how this song was composed. This song is, I'm, I'm really fascinated by what, what is traditionally called the 11 o'clock number, which used to be because shows used to start at 8.30 back in the day. Um, so that would have been, you know, now, now it's different. It's mm. really the 10.15 number. But it's the, when, when a protagonist really has the most to lose and, and uh, really is making the biggest decision. And she or he or they go from the greatest darkness into the greatest light. There's, it's the moment of illumination. And Lost Wife is like that. She makes this decision that she will squish herself down, that she will flatten herself. The way that she presses the iron and, and has it sizzle, she will flatten her spirit and her soul in order to condense her spirit so that her children can go forward. Otherwise, something bad is going to happen if she desires and she wants and she needs. This is Lot's wife from Carolina Change. Always there's been people who hold their head high getting through. I can't. I can't. Ain't never been no good finding joy the way you should. Water turned to wine, hope's fine, hope's fine, hope's fine, till it turned to mud. And some folks go to school at night, some folks march for civil rights. I don't, I ain't got the heart, I can't hardly read. Some folks do all kinds of things, and black folks someday live like kings, and someday sunshine shine. what Caroline can do. That is from Caroline or Change. My guest is Janine Tesori. We'll have more with Janine after a quick break. This is all of it. (music) 
This is all of it. I'm Allison Stewart. My guest this hour is composer Janine Tesori. So Janine, I read that you, when you work with collaborators, you ask them for quote noodles. What, yeah, what, my noodles. What's a noodle? <laughs> I, I think that I should make a ramen company. Well, it would be Italian, so it'd be a noodle company. <laughs> what is the noodle? Okay, so the noodle is when I work with, um, it's anyone with text. I really, um, I, I need to know what happens before we, before we organize. You know, before you pack for a really long trip, all your stuff is strewn about and you look and you pick what you need and then you organize it. Well, unless you're me, you don't. You just take that and you shove it in a suitcase. <laughs> but other people organize it and edit and choose and then you put it in a container. That container is the AAB, or in my situation, a C, a D, an E minus. We just, I love going all over. But you have to do something that makes sure that, for me, that the ear stays engaged and is organized enough with what they would call a ritornello or refrain that you come back to that hits your ear in an organized way. Otherwise, if it's through composed and you're just going along anywhere, um, it's a different kind of listener that you're asking a different kind of listening. So I like these noodles because sometimes I'll I'll get inspired by them and think this right there, this let's let's do more with this because the the playwright or the librettist has not had the the sort of burden of rhyming or organizing them yet. And I I really love that. I think they're you know, I used to bake with my um, Nona, we would make all of these things and she would have ex extra pie crust and we, she, we would make nothing went to waste with her. Mm -hmm. And it's like extra pie crust. What was her name? What's your Nona's name? Oh, uh, my, my Nona was, uh, her name was Luisa Vento. She was, uh, Dominic Vento is my grandfather, who was the uh, conductor and composer. Luisa was an, an artist and uh, was pulled out of school when she was 12 mm. to uh, take care and and cook um, for the family. So I really always think about her. She was she was so wonderful. Sounds like an amazing person to know. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, when you talked about the collaboration and, and the pieces and the information you get and the information about the characters and their lived lives and you're thinking about that as you're making the music, can you think of a moment, um, a collaboration, either maybe it could be in Carolina Change or Kimberly Kimbo or in Fun Home, something that people might remember that was one of those magic moments when everything just came together in the right way. Oh, absolutely. For me, as soon as you said that, um, I thought about Fun Home because the, the, the thing that I really love about theater is it's, it's the most democratic form, I think, that you can get democracy and theater making. They're related. They're messy. They are very hard to figure out because they're they're individual and they're the collective. And you have to feel as strongly about the individual that you do for the collective. And that's why they're difficult. So if someone in the group has a strong sense of something, you go with it. That's the rule. You go with it. When we were uh, in rehearsals for Fun Home, we were doing one of 300 workshops uh, we were trying to figure some, something out in Telephone Wire. The big event in the narrative is that Allison draws the truth so much that like Alice in Wonderland, she gets pulled into it. And the, and the father turns to her and says, do you want to drive, Allison? And you have seen the older Allison at 43 and the 19-year-old. And the 43-year-old steps into the story. It's really a, a really stunning moment. 
And she goes through, she's remembering it, she's misremembering it, she's trying to make sense. So the past and the present collide. Um, and there's, there's this sense at the end that of course we haven't seen the 19 year old and we were trying to figure out what in the finale would happen. Suddenly I thought, oh, you have to see the 19 year old repeat what we never in the audience got to see at the light, at the light, at the light. So we remember what happened there because we couldn't figure out what to do. And it happened to be, to be my idea, but it wasn't mine. It was a collective that all of us had been sort of uh, offering something into the poker game. And I just thought, oh, I know what it is. It's this. And those moments are so gratifying because they're, they they're not there that often. And they're the, the causality of a hundred moments before, and then one person will think of it. While we're on the topic of Fun Home, it was announced in 2020 that Jake Gyllenhaal's production company will be taking it on, possibly as a film with him starring and Sam Gold directing. Will you be involved with this? Yes. Um, Lisa's wrote the screenplay. The screenplay is incredible. And um, we are, we've been working steadily on it. She's been working uh, in, a, in a, a very focused way. And it's, it's really quite wonderful. And it is uh, what I love what she has done is she's deepened it so that it's inevitable for the camera. It's not just taking it and it's not reimagining it. It's going down, you know, it's sort of down south with it and, and to the depth of what my question was always, why would we do this and what would the camera bring? And that's why one of the reasons I was so grateful for the time on West Side Story is to really look at a live action movie musical and the possibilities of it and how better to learn that than with Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner. And that's Lisa Cron, we should mention, who who is the co-writer of Fun Home. Okay, you got me to West Side Story. Thank you for the how segue. About that? You're welcome for that segue. <laughs> <laughs> Janine Tesori, composer and segueist. Um, so West Side Story, you were part of this you know, robust musical supervision team. We had um, David Newman, who did uh, orchestrations, on-set music by Matt Sullivan, Gustavo Dumadel conducting, and you oversaw the vocals. Yes. How, how were you? How did you? How were you originally um, approached to do this, and why did you say yes? It was Tony. Tony ha had said, "You know, we're doing this. We're doing this, and uh, I think that you should talk to Stephen and and see if this would work out." And uh, I am very aware of when I say yes immediately to something, because often it will be impulsive and the reasons will become clear later. It, it usually works out that way that I have to listen. If there's a no and I say yes, it almost turns out to be a no eventually. But this was a big yes. Part of it was I wanted to work with, it felt like I was the Avengers and a part of this team and you're on this magic mountain with all of these masters. I mean, the people on this music team, sometimes I would look around and I think, God, you, you have to keep up Janine. There's Dudamel and David Newman, who is a genius. Mm -hmm. Matt Sullivan did this great job. Sean Murphy, one of the great engineers. I got to sit and mix with Sean Murphy. That was for me, I would look over at him. Now, Sean is, he invented this sound. There is no one who can get the, the boom and the bass of, of, a, of a score like he could. And we got to play with, you know, what would the vocals do as we were mixing the soundtrack and uh, that was 
all of these moments were incredible. And I also wanted to learn about what a camera could do if you're not just thinking about a theatrical version of the movie and simply replacing the proscenium with something that frames and, and the camera is stays. And what Stephen did for this musical West Side Story that I know is very complicated for a lot of people, mm-hmm. what he did to honor this form, um, I, I thought was, it's so extraordinary what he did with the camera and the understanding of music, the editing in it. I, I think it's extraordinary. I do want to play a clip, A Boy Like That, I Have Love, from the soundtrack, which features Maria, played by Rachel Zegler, and Anita, played by Ariana DeBose. Uh, what kind of guidance did you give your, your vocalists? Well, for me, the thing that I really have learned is um, you start shooting when you start recording the vocals. And it's not that you're obeying them, but those decisions start getting made then, and that's before you start shooting. And I'm really aware of of how you go from silence into sound. The first three minutes of a musical are some interesting pact. You're sort of sitting down to a meeting and you're extending your hand to the audience and saying, hi. And if you're wearing a big green hat, um, you know, and your body is completely tattooed, you're a, a person is going to look at you a certain way. That's the pact of how you look, how you sound. And so there's that sweet moment. And in a musical, the way that you go from, and Peter Stone always described this beautifully, of going from dialogue into this teeing up into the poetry of lyric. And often there's a jolt. And what I wanted to understand was the song often starts way before you hear it. Mm. You hear it when the fader goes up, but often in a scene, and I will do this as an exercise with students and singers. You hear an intro way before it's subterranean. So I wanted them to understand that the beginning of the song, when she says, I feel pretty, uh, what is it like to be this woman surrounded by whiteness of all of these mannequins for whom she services and is cleaning, but she feels pretty. The context of that added a very subtle distinction the way that she said that. No, a boy like that was done live. So I wanted to make sure that there was many, many people, not just me, hundreds of people are responsible, but that all of these moments, the way they look, the way that they're going to be they're you know, they're going to be 20 feet tall. The, their heads are going to be uh, very large when they sing, that they're singing with their eyes, that they're remembering these moments that things are infused in behavior, that these are real people, that this is not West Side Story, the famous iconic piece. This is a story of of tragedy that's based on hundreds of years old that is still happening. And that's the that's the fun of it, I would I guess I would call it. Let's hear a boy like that from West Side Story. A boy like that will give you sorrow. You'll meet another boy tomorrow. One of your own kind, stick to your own. It isn't true. 
That's a boy like that. I have love from West Side Story. My guest this hour has been Janine Tesori. Janine, we want to, I do this sometimes. I'm going to live book you for when your opera comes out, Blue. <laughs> so we oh. can have some time. We're running up against a time window and I don't want to squish it. So I'd love to have you come back on and talk about it, if that would be possible. Absolutely. If you can see Carolina Change, it's running, Carolina Change, it's running through the ninth of this month, Kimberly Akimbo is running through the 15th. Fingers crossed that one goes to Broadway as well. Blue, the opera album will be out in March, and we'll talk to Janine Chisori about it then. Janine, thank you for giving us so much time today. A complete pleasure. Thank you for having me.